Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special symposium episode of the show focused on financial and corporate regulation in the Biden administration. As part of this symposium, we'll hear from five panels of scholars and practitioners about what we might expect for financial and corporate regulation over the next four years of the Biden-Harris administration. We'll return with our regular episodes next week. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app. We'll let others know about the show, too. Welcome to the first episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. This panel focuses on banking and financial regulation and features Gina Gale Fletcher, Christina Skinner, and Kurt Wolf. Gina Gale, Christina, Kurt, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much. It's good to be here, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andrew. I'm looking forward to hearing some of your insights about banking and financial regulation in just a few moments and maybe what that's going to look like over the next four years. But I wondered if before we begin, if you could introduce yourselves and any areas or issues that you're focused on as we look to the next four years of banking and financial regulation. Gina Gell? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm Gina Gale Fletcher. I'm a professor of law at Duke University School of Law. And my area of focus is really keen for this panel. I'm, I focus on financial regulation. And so I think one of the things that will be interesting about the next four years for the Biden administration is their focus on the issue of racial justice and financial inclusion. It's undeniable that black and brown voters were crucial to the Biden-Harris win. And they have been, black and brown voters have been mistreated and ignored by the current Trump administration in various ways. So I think it'll be crucially important for the Biden administration to make good on certain promises that it's made in terms of taking financial inclusion and racial justice or racial equity seriously in terms of how these issues can affect communities of color that have been ravaged by not just the COVID pandemic, but systemic exclusion from the financial markets. And really what I'm really interested in seeing is how we can achieve this level of or some form of racial equity within the capital markets, right? Because for so long, issues of racial justice and racial equity have been considered largely in terms of policing and most recently in terms of consumer protection. And while both of these are undeniably important, I think that there is some role for racial equity considerations within the capital markets. And that is considered in terms of who gets access to the capital markets as entrepreneurs, the composition of corporate boards in terms of racial diversity, and thinking about racial justice and equity as a part of the agenda for various regulators, such as the feds and the SEC. So for these upcoming four years, that's kind of what my focus will be as I think about where the administration is going and what that might look like. Thank you, Christina. Thanks again, Andrew, for organizing this symposium, which I'm delighted to contribute to. So yeah, again, Christina Skinner here. I'm an assistant professor of legal studies at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And prior to joining the faculty at Wharton, I was a lawyer at the Bank of England. So currently I am, of course, focused on financial regulation and more specifically, I look at issues of central banking, investment funds, increasingly questions of law and macroeconomics and separation of powers issues as they arise in the context of financial regulation. And going forward for the next couple of years, the research issues that I'm focused on in which 
I'll elaborate on in different forms as we continue this conversation include the role of the executive branch in financial regulation and the growing phenomenon of what I call central bank activism and other issues that I've previously written about in the financial stability space concerning the Financial Stability Oversight Council, as well as so-called shadow banking. So again, delighted to be here and looking forward to elaborating as we go forward. Thank you. And Kurt? Yeah, Andrew, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in the symposium. I'm excited to be on this panel and interested to hear all of our different perspectives on what banking and financial regulation might look like in the Biden administration. My name is Kurt Wolf. I'm an attorney at the law firm Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, where I practice in the government investigations, compliance, and enforcement team. And I focus on securities regulatory matters, as well as SEC and FINRA investigations and enforcement actions. Also, uh, shameless pug, uh, I'm the co-host of the Insecurities Podcast, produced by PLI, where we talk about securities regulation, capital markets issues, SEC enforcement, and related topics. And Andrew, we were delighted to have you on the show a couple of weeks ago. Looking ahead into the Biden administration, from a professional standpoint, of course, I will be following closely any changes to the securities regulatory and enforcement landscape, as I think there is plenty of space for there to be some changes over the next four years or to fill some gaps maybe that exist in some of the rulemaking we've seen during the Trump administration. On a somewhat interconnected but more personal note, perhaps, and picking up on Gina Gale's comments, you know, I was really encouraged by some of the promises out of the Biden campaign about how they were going to help close the racial wealth gap, about how they were going to help working people and families do better. And so I will be closely watching how the administration pursues that agenda. Thank you all for those introductions. And my hope with this symposium is to really have a forelooking view of the next four years, but I thought we might start with a backward-looking view of the current administration, the Trump administration, or perhaps the administration before it, the Obama administration. And so I wondered if there are particular opportunities that have been missed or failures or missed opportunities that you've seen in the current or the prior administration, and perhaps some opportunities for the Biden-Harris administration to grab the ring and to embrace some missed opportunities that prior administrations haven't gotten to or have passed by. Gina Gill? Sure. I think one issue here to just piggyback on my opening comments would be that I wouldn't even call it a missed opportunity. Rather, the Trump administration was fairly openly hostile to issues of diversity and racial justice. And so given the Trump administration's dismantling of many of the Obama era efforts that may have been aimed at mitigating, ameliorating, or studying issues related to the racial and gender wealth gap. Many of those have been dismantled by the Trump administration. I think low-hanging fruit, so to speak, for the Biden administration would just be to kind of reinstate and revitalize some of these mandates that were in place during the Obama era uh, to kind of get that data, to have those systems in place, to get that information. But I do think a missed opportunity within the Trump administration would be to to kind of get a better handle on the issues facing the unbanked and the underbanked within our financial system and using financial technology, fintech, as a way to address many of those issues. I think currently fintech is here. It's obviously here to stay and it's booming. And I believe that the Trump administration fumbled a bit in terms of figuring out how to deal with that and to some extent just leaving it 
entirely unhandled uh, completely. And I think that there is great promise with fintech. I think there are also significant concerns that can arise from fintech that will go to these issues of racial bias being built into certain financial technology applications and platforms. And I believe that the soon-to-be prior administration, the Trump administration, may have missed opportunities there. And so it'll be Great to see what the future looks like with the Biden-Harris administration in terms of addressing these issues. Thank you. Christina? Thanks. Yeah, so I'm going to go back in time a little bit in my remarks here and focus on three mistakes that I think were made in reaction to the global financial crisis of 2008. And I would suggest that avoiding repeats of these mistakes are, in fact, opportunities for the future. And again, these are sort of things that I've, you know, pulling on things that I've written about before. So the first of these sort of mistakes falls under the category of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, and the FSOC's use of its entity-based designation system. So Title I of the Dodd-Frank Act gave the FSOC, this interagency council of financial regulators, the power to basically scan the financial system for various non-bank financial institutions like asset managers or insurance companies and decide whether they're systemically risky, either because of these institution size and mix of activities or because of a view that material distress at one of these institutions could lead to major problems in the U.S. financial system and in turn economy. So in the early years of the FSOC's existence, it really put this entity-based designation system to use, right? Designating a couple of different non-bank financial companies as systemically important. So these were MetLife, AIG, GE Capital, and Prudential. And the result of this is that a non-bank SIFI designation really ports that institution over into the Fed's jurisdiction for the application of heightened prudential and supervisory requirements. Now, I've argued that the use of this entity-based designation power is a mistake. And more accurately, it's a legislative mistake in the design of the designation power itself. And the reason that I've urged that this design is mistaken is because of its binary quality. So the non-bank SIFI designation, it's an on-off switch, right? You're either a non-bank SIFI or you're not. And the result of the use of this entity-based system was to incentivize very heavy resistance from the industry. So MetLife sued the FSOC, GE Capital restructured, Prudential and AIG overhauled their business models, all in these efforts to escape the designation system. And, you know, I would argue that going forward, it's much more productive to continue, as the FSOC has done over the past couple of years, to focus on specific activities in the financial system and this discernment of whether specific kinds of activities, like significant use of leverage in various hedge funds, poses systemic risk to the financial system. And if it is the case that the entity-based designation system is resumed again, I would urge the FSOC to consider a more spectrum-like system. And maybe this requires a legislative fix, right? To replace or at least complement this on-off switch, right? So it might be the case that there are certain classes of institutions that could warrant 
some additional Fed supervision without necessarily also slapping on bank-like prudential requirements, like capital requirements. And I think this would be a much more productive use of the FSOC's time, focusing on activities and perhaps modifying to a more gradated or spectrum-like designation system. The second point I would make sort of really refers to an overbroad skepticism of so-called shadow banking that we again saw after the 2008 financial crisis. So a period of time after that crisis, all eyes in the prior administration and really around the world among various financial regulators turned to focus on the perils sort of widespread of so-called shadow banking. Now, in these days, in those days, all forms of non-bank credit intermediation, ranging from money market mutual funds to private equity funds, were referred to, were lumped together as shadow banking. And I think there was a lot of time and energy wasted with general angst about non-bank credit intermediation rather than thinking critically, trying to discern what kinds of funds posed bank-like risks, that is the pairing of short-term liabilities with longer-term or difficult-to-liquidate assets, and addressing those risks more parsimoniously. Now, I've heard some rumblings of this again, and I think it misses a key point, right, which is to say that non-bank or market-based credit intermediation is an essential spare tire. They provide counter-cyclical sources of capital that are necessary to complement bank-supplied credit because during periods of economic turbulence, we know that banks pull back from lending and we also know that economies need credit to recover and to thrive. And so taking an overly sort of broad stance on non-bank credit intermediation could do an overall disservice to the economy. So again, just sort of thinking carefully, taking seriously which funds are structured stably and sort of putting them in a separate category from those that might not be structured as stably and focusing there. So the third and final point I would make is about the need to avoid a general sort of stoking of popular antipathy of the financial sector. So in political science, right, there's a well-known phenomenon referred to as the rally around the flag phenomenon. And we see this in, in leaders from time to time. It's in fact a tale as old as time, right? Sometimes people benefit from a common enemy to unite the people. And sometimes it's politically expedient to be at war. Now, To be clear, there were certainly excesses after the 2008 crisis that needed firm correction. But having a populace that's against the financial sector really doesn't benefit anyone, except maybe a few in power for the short term. Finance is an engine of long-term growth. Decades upon decades of empirical research have shown us that economic growth is essential for societal well-being, for happiness, for prosperity. And for years, this is why international financial institutions did studies of so-called financial depth, right, to try and understand how deep, that is how extensive, is a country's financial system to get a sense of how well it's doing. And by the way, we also know that the deeper a country's financial system, the better off all strata of society are doing. There's a very interesting study I would recommend to all the listeners by Oxford's Martin School that shows that in 1950, 75% of the world were still living in poverty. Today, thanks to financial capitalism, those living in extreme poverty are less than 10%. So we still have a problem, but we've narrowed the scope of the problem. You know, one can look at a handful of other related metrics to see the long-term power of financial capital, average wage in 1950, average lifespans in 1950, literacy, disease rates, etc. Now, the key point here 
is that all boats need to rise together for capitalism to work, right? So instead of focusing on whether or not we should toss capitalism, we need to figure out how to make it work and work better for everyone. And, you know, specifically tying this all back to financial regulation in the next couple of years, I think the SEC has made some positive strides in this direction that I hope continue and improve. In particular, thinking about how to modify the definition of accredited investor, right? So that more retail investors, a broader swath of the investing public can participate in some very high yielding investment opportunities in private funds. And I think this ties into what Gina Gale was saying before about making sure everyone has meaningful access to the capital markets. And, you know, just to conclude for anyone that's sort of interested in this line of reasoning, I would recommend to you Robert Schiller's book, Nobel Prize winning economist at Yale, which is called Finance and the Good Society. Thank you. And Kurt. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I, I'm going to focus a little bit more on the securities regulatory landscape. And I know Christina's sort of steering us in that direction. I think in terms of missed opportunities or mistakes, it really depends on the prism through which you view the financial regulatory landscape. You know, I'm sure that there are some folks who would come on the panel and lament many missed opportunities. You know, for example, I think there are some that believe the Trump administration and the federal regulatory agencies it oversees didn't fully live up to the administration's promises or potential to pursue an aggressive deregulatory agenda, at least in the banking and financial services space. I realize there may have been greater success in areas like environmental regulation, healthcare, or immigration policy, but the administration really didn't deliver on the promise to pursue a deregulatory agenda in the FinReg space. In fact, in the securities regulatory space, if anything, there's been an uptick in the number of rulemakings or the sort of shape of the landscape. In fact, in a letter that now former SEC Chairman Jay Clayton sent to President Trump before he stepped down, Clayton touted the more than 90 rulemakings finalized during his time at the commission. And of the many rules, the amendments were often designed to modernize, quote, modernize the regulatory framework. And that was really a hallmark of Chairman Clayton's tenure at the commission. These were often a switch from more prescriptive rules to more principles-based rules, and these covered everything from OTC securities offerings to disclosures under Reg SK, MD&A disclosures, more famously, perhaps the principles-based advertising rule, which I think was just finalized and folks are really struggling with from a compliance perspective. There was also just a barrage of new rules that weren't amendments or modernizing an existing rule. The best or most famous example there is probably regulation best interests, but also, um, to Christina's point, rules that changed how retail investors can access the private markets. So I think on the whole, the SEC at least wasn't really much of a deregulatory agency. And I think many would see that potentially as a missed opportunity. Some others, uh, being a little bit more specific, that maybe we would categorize as mistakes. Again, it sort of depends on your prism, but there are sort of three regulatory areas and then enforcement, which I'll come on to last because it's my favorite thing to talk about. First, I think a missed opportunity or potentially a mistake was actually putting in place these principles-based rules because it leaves an awful lot of gray that we are going to have to sort of figure out and learn as we go. You know, I, I understand the philosophy or the thinking between not adopting prescriptive rules. But I think what that leaves is in the next administration area for more guidance or no action letters that sort of 
create what feels like a rulemaking or sort of at least set the boundaries of the rule outside of the APA's notice and comment rulemaking approach. And of course, there's also the potential for the dreaded regulation by enforcement in the next administration, which I think many feel will be more enforcement oriented. The second regulatory uh, mistake, perhaps, I think was really regulation best interest. You know, I, I sometimes refer to it as an unforced error because I think that the fallout is going to be greater than the potential benefits of the rule, whether that is because there are state securities regulators promulgating their own rules or because there's going to be you know, litigation that the SEC could potentially lose when it comes to a preemption question or other things, whether the next administration feels like they want to roll that rule back and come up with a different framework. I think it's going to continue to be a thorn in the side of the SEC, and it really didn't have to be that way. The third regulatory missed opportunity, I think, relates to cryptocurrency or digital assets. And really here, I think the SEC could have carved itself out as the regulator in this space. And instead, we haven't seen a rulemaking. There's been a little bit of guidance, but not much. I know Commissioner Peirce would love to grab that area and be a more aggressive or maybe more clear regulator in the space. But the SEC hasn't really done that. And so we're in this murky area where they're sort of sharing the regulatory authority with a number of other agencies. And then last, just from an enforcement standpoint, again, this is where I spend an awful lot of time thinking, and it's where I usually practice. There was really an opportunity, I think, to reshape the enforcement division at the SEC and a model that the Trump administration or the GOP might like better. And it was an interesting four years because there were a number of Supreme Court decisions that directly impacted the enforcement program at the SEC. I mean, really an unprecedented number of Supreme Court cases given the short period. And they did everything from, you know, we had Lucia, which dealt with administrative proceedings or administrative law judges and the constitutionality of their appointment. We had Lou, which dealt with the statute of limitations. In every instance, there was an opportunity to sort of pare back the enforcement division or the enforcement agenda a little bit. And we just never really saw it. You know, I think a lot of people don't like administrative proceedings, but after Lucia, instead of reshaping that program or limiting it, they just sort of fixed the particular problem flagged up by the Supreme Court and moved on. In lieu, now I think there are questions about, although this may be fixed by legislation, uh, but there were questions about what is the statute of limitations applicable to an SEC case in which they seek disgorgement in federal district court. And sort of instead of saying, we're going to use this as an opportunity to limit civil penalties. Instead, what we hear from the Division of Enforcement is we are just going to decrease the amount of disgorgement we seek and increase the amount of the penalty. So, you know, sort of at every term where there was an opportunity, I think, to pare back the enforcement division, it didn't happen. And we didn't see the number of cases fall. So again and again, I think that enforcement is as strong as it was four years ago. And that for some will be a missed opportunity. Predicting the future is pretty hard. We are recording this conversation on the 29th of December 2020, and we don't really know at this point what control of Congress, for example, will look like or what the full composition of the Biden administration will look like. With those constraints in mind, I wondered if our panelists might be able to offer some predictions for what we might see in the next four years, or if you don't maybe have predictions for what we'll see, are there any aspirations that you'd like to see? Gina Gill? 
One of the things that I hope to maybe stray away from predicting, one of the things that I hope that the new administration might focus on or go towards over the next four years has to do with the issues around environmental, social, and governance issues, ESG issues. As ESG investing has grown significantly over the past few years, there's been a lot of complaints about the lack of standardization of what it exactly means, right? What is exactly being invested in and how we can know whether or not these investments are actually doing the things that they say they can do. And with the Biden administration's very explicit focus on environmental issues, I'm hopeful that they will actually use this opportunity to move towards better climate-related disclosures so that we can have some form of investment that does support the environment, that does support sustainability, and does back the administration's stated opinion that climate change is a major issue that's facing us right now. With the Trump administration, we had you know, a withdrawal from the Paris agreements and such. Uh, And here with the Biden administration, we have a real opportunity to become a leader once again, in terms of environmental issues. And I'm hopeful that the administration will use this opportunity to do so. And whether that's through SEC rulemaking to have better disclosures um, on climate related issues, or through some other mechanism, I'm hopeful that we will actually move towards that. And then the second thing is my constant refrain for this conversation so far is that I'm hopeful that we will have a much more explicit focus on financial inclusion and racial justice and thinking creatively about how to achieve those goals within the financial markets, within the capital markets, to kind of link to things that both Kurt and Christina have said, the changes to the accredited investor definitions gives greater access to all individuals uh, to the markets. But we also want to think broadly too about how entrepreneurs are funded. And that is actually a project I am working on right now, which is thinking about how we can have greater diversity of access to funds for entrepreneurs of color and what that might look like from a regulatory standpoint. How can financial regulators assist with that? And what was really interesting was that in a few months ago, someone affiliated with the Federal Reserve made the comment that systemic racism is a financial issue that we need to care about. And for that to just be a continuous way in which we can think about or be mindful of how the financial regulation develops and how it can impact the lives of disadvantaged communities and communities of color. So my hope would be that the administration is broad in how it thinks about its regulatory agenda in terms of what affects communities of color and that it requires more climate-related disclosures that will allow us to have better environmental and sustainable investing decisions possible for the investing public. Thank you, Christina. Thanks. So, yeah, so I also am a little bit, you know, worried about doing predictions, but I do, in fact, have two predictions, both of which give me cause for a bit of concern. And I want to focus, you know, first also on climate change issues, but from a slightly different vantage point, which focuses on the Fed. And then Briefly, I'll say a few things about Fed transparency. So again, my predictions here are going to be focused mostly on things I see coming down the pike at the Fed. 
So first, in regard to climate change, there's been a lot of clamor about the Fed undertaking climate change issues in a variety of ways. These include embarking on a program of green QE, which would involve the Fed using its balance sheet to buy, for example, green bonds, to adjusting risk-based capital requirements, which would effectively deter banks from lending to certain carbon-intensive industries, to measures including sort of turning up the dial on supervision to really have a closer look at what banks are doing vis-a-vis their lending to, again, certain carbon-intensive industries. Now, for a while, the Fed resisted sort of popular and political pressure to get into the business of trying to proactively make the financial system greener, but it seems like some cracks may be emerging. So for example, the Fed very recently joined the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is a consortium of central banks around the world, which as its name suggests, are embarked in a project to try and understand how central banks can use the array of policy tools at their disposal to try and make the financial system greener. Now, I would argue, and I have done so in a draft paper, that it would be a mistake for the Fed to get into the business of trying to make the financial system greener, at least without some more distinct congressional instruction to do so. Now, why is that? So climate change is a problem, but it's not at all clear as a legal or policy matter that this is a problem for the Fed. The Fed's legal mandate, that's to say the power that Congress has given it, is explicitly based in a few known statutory provisions. Its best-known mandate regards its monetary policy authority, and that's found in Section 2A of the Federal Reserve Act. And it refers explicitly to price stability and maximum employment. At least right now, climate change hasn't had a discernible impact on either. Now, there is concern that it could, and that's fine. It may well be, but that isn't how monetary policy works. Monetary policy is meant to react to real and present price instability or macroeconomic shocks. If climate change were to cause macroeconomic shock or price instability, then the Fed certainly can act through conventional and perhaps unconventional monetary policy tools to address those economic issues. But it would be, again, mistaken to compare the Fed's power in this regard, in regard to its monetary policy authority, to the things that are possible and that are happening abroad at the European Central Bank or at the Bank of England. Now, those central banks have what are called secondary mandates, which direct those banks to look to, to factor in prerogatives of the government. And this includes, and especially in the case of the ECB, green goals. So this gives those central banks a clear legal basis and political cover to use their monetary policy tools to proactively green the financial system. The Fed does not have that legal basis today. Now, the Fed also has an implicit mandate based in the Dodd-Frank Act and really its historic role as the lender of last resort to generally look after the financial system and its stability overall. And, you know, many are hanging their hat on Fed action in the climate space premised on climate being a financial stability risk. You know, but as I'm asking in my paper, you know, how exactly is this so? Financial stability risk implies some risk that so threatens a bank's balance sheet that a bank or a collection of big banks is going to come to the brink of insolvency. 
But if you examine bank balance sheets and the true nature of their exposure, which is to say how much they loan to carbon-heavy industries like autos, oil and gas, it's tiny, right? Their exposure, these banks' exposure in the form of wholesale loans is between 1% and 4%, depending on the SIFI of the total balance sheet. Now, meanwhile, in absolute figures, the equity capital that these banks hold far outstrips the dollar amount of these wholesale loans outstanding. So simply stated, this means that even if banks had to write off 100% of their loans to various different carbon industries, they would be nowhere close to insolvency. Now, maybe, maybe the Fed has a leg to stand on in regard to its microprudential supervision. So the Bank Holding Company Act has some general language about bank safety and soundness. Now, on that basis, you know, I think the Fed could perhaps start to consider the possibility of asset quality deterioration that could come about from climate change or start to review banks' underwriting practices to see how well they're accounting for climate risk right now. But bank-specific supervision, that is microprudential supervision, cannot legitimately be a guise or a subterfuge for regulation that wants to force banks to debank the carbon industry. Not only does the Fed not have the legitimacy to do that, the unintended consequences must be considered and they could be perverse. So, for example, you know, it's pretty widely acknowledged that we need fossil fuels to build our bridge to a low carbon economy. So how perverse would it be if the Fed, in trying to green the financial system, instead lit a match to that bridge. So just to give you one quick example, you know, consider that BP is spending, you know, billions to go what they call, quote, beyond petroleum. So BP just announced its commitment to be carbon neutral in its operations, including all of its downstream product effects by 2050. So BP's invested tremendous resources in developing technology to engage in carbon capture. So do we as a society want to starve those kinds of endeavors from bank financing, right? There are market forces already here at work. So on the whole, it's not at all clear that the Fed has the legal authority to intervene here. And it's not even clear that stepping outside of its mandate could be justifiable on some kind of sort of Machiavellian ends justify the means rationale. And then, you know, finally, stepping away from the climate change issues at the Fed, I would just note that or predict, if you will, that I've heard a bit of conflation among Fed's moves to increase its transparency with notions of deregulation and in turn some appetite to stop the Fed's moves toward becoming more transparent. And, and, you know, prediction slash mistake here, in my view, under the leadership of current vice chair for supervision, Randy Quarles, the Fed has made some really important strides in supervisory transparency surrounding its stress testing models, surrounding the rejection of the use of guidance as regulation. And, you know, Quarles has even sort of intimated that he views it important to make the rating system more clear or more predictable. Now, these have all been positive steps forward in addressing what had become growing rule of law concerns surrounding sort of the secret law or secret law of supervision and the amount of discretion that's been baked into Fed supervision over a number of decades. So, you know, walking back the Fed's efforts to become more transparent, especially in the realm of supervision, could damage the credibility of the Fed and possibly its authority. And sort of generally, my view is that weakening the Fed's power in this way would be problematic. 
We've seen in the past decade just how much we need a powerful Fed, one that has the authority that comes from acting legitimately to shepherd our society through some really difficult economic crises. Thank you. And Kurt? So like Gina Gale and Christina, I don't want to be too specific about any predictions that I think will happen, but happy to talk about some directions I would expect uh, at least the SEC to go. And one of the reasons I think that we can't be too specific is because we just don't really know enough yet. There have been plenty of sort of broad policy positions or philosophies that we've heard from the Biden team, but to some extent, we don't know how it's going to play out on the ground. And that really depends on who become the heads of the various agencies that are overseeing any of the areas we've talked about today. Uh, You know, I think that's going to be true, whether we're talking about the SEC or the CFTC, the Department of Labor, Education, or the EPA. We're we're all going to get a better sense of what their regulatory agenda will look like once we know who's going to be heading up those agencies. And you can kind of see this going in a couple different ways, actually, depending on what happens in these Georgia runoff elections, which I think we'll probably hopefully know the results of by the time this episode airs. But it will probably change, potentially change, who are the nominees to head up the various agencies. So I'll focus on the SEC as I typically do. You know, you can imagine a scenario where it could be easier to elevate Commissioner Allison Heron Lee to become the new chairperson than it would be to get through a new nominee. Now, you know, a potential way to get around that would be through a Rob Jackson as a nominee for the chairperson because he's been through the process and I think he's broadly viewed as a consensus builder. But it could be difficult to get through someone who is a a much more progressive regulator or someone we think is going to be a hyper-enforcement-oriented chairperson if we have a Republican-controlled Senate. So I do think it's something that we need to think about and maybe just pump the brakes a little bit before we get a little bit too specific about any predictions. Uh, You know, of course, whoever the chair becomes will have her or his own perspective and priorities. You know, if it was an Allison Heron Lee, I know that she is very focused on disclosure and market data. You know, she is interested or was perhaps disappointed with the rule amendments relating to Reg SK and MDNA disclosures. She is very supportive of coming up with some kind of framework for systematic ESG disclosures. And I think at this point, we all agree that ESG is going to be on the table probably across a a number of agencies in the next four years. And then, you know, Allison Heron Lee doesn't really like the way that the rules have expanded access to the private markets for retail investors. So another area that could come under scrutiny or perhaps new rulemaking, you know, if we think about someone like a Rob Jackson at the helm of the SEC, he likes to think about things like market structure and competition. He has been very critical of certain types of insider trading that he believes exists in the market in the so-called 8K gap. And cybersecurity is another area where he has focused and sees as a huge threat to the capital markets. You know, that's not to say that these folks don't have areas of common interest, but I do think that their individual perspectives would affect the direction that an agency like the SEC would go. Again, thinking about the SEC in particular, I I would say that there are some areas that we would expect a Democratic nominee to go, no matter who that person is. And just at the highest level, I think a lot of it is going to be about restoring faith and fairness in the markets. And whether that is explaining the bounds of some of these principles-based rules that have passed over the last four years, 
or coming up with new rulemakings. I do think a lot of it is going to be about making sure that folks have access that they feel like they're being fairly treated in the capital markets or in their investments. I don't necessarily think that's going to mean unwinding a lot of the rules that we have seen adopted over the last four years. Uh, But I do think in some cases, it's going to mean enforcing them. And folks might not always like that for some of these principles-based or squishy rules. So uh, here are some of the more specific priority areas I would expect to see from any Democratic chairperson at the SEC. I'll sort of call these the low-hanging fruit (laughs) first, I think, are complex products. It continues to be an area of focus for the SEC. Uh, We're talking about things like leveraged and inverse exchange-traded products. They are really out of favor with a great many of the staff at the SEC. And I think it's going to be an area where they continue to focus, and we could even see some rulemaking or more specific guidance in that area. Insider trading, I think, is going to be a big area of focus. It has, to some extent, disappeared from the enforcement program over the last four years. That's not to say they're not bringing cases, but not as many as we saw in past administrations. I think that's going to be the 8K gap, possibly 10B51 plans. I think that there will be a potential rulemaking around uh, members of Congress trading and periods when they maybe shouldn't trade depending on information that they may possess. I think that uh, the administration will look at some market structure issues, which could include things like the role of credit agencies, competition. I think some more nuts and bolts structural issues like payment for order types could be the type of area where we'll see more guidance. Disclosure is going to continue to be a big deal. Cybersecurity and disclosures relating to cybersecurity breaches, I think is going to be a focus area, both from a rulemaking perspective and enforcement. I would expect to see more focus on uh, robo-advisory platforms or online trading platforms, even if they're self-directed, because I think that that area continues to have explosive growth, both in terms of the number of investors and the AUM that exists on those platforms and is traded through those platforms. And it's an area that we don't really have specific rulemaking or guidance. You know, There have been some speeches and often from a regulatory standpoint, we're trying to figure out how do we fit these robo-advisors in the existing regulatory framework. But I think there's going to be more thinking about that because sometimes it's a little bit like a square peg in a round hole. From an enforcement standpoint, look, we're not going to see a slowdown. I don't know how much more they can do, right? Everybody thought in the last four years, enforcement was going to fall off a cliff and it didn't. But I think maybe what we're going to see is better and faster enforcement. I think they will have access to more resources, um, both in terms of money to spend and the number of people. I think they're going to have better tools. And I think that we're going to start to get to resolutions uh, more quickly in those cases. Not sure that we're going to see huge programmatic shifts within the division of enforcement, but I do think that it's just going to get a little bit like better and faster. A few weeks from now or a few months from now, if folks from the White House or one of the agencies or the 117th Congress come to you and say, what advice do you have for banking and financial regulation? What should we do? What would you tell them? Ginny Gill? Oh, so that... That one is also (laughs) fairly difficult. But I think what I would tell them is to not be afraid to stay the course with some of the things that they have been campaigning on for the last few months, specifically with regards to more controversial issues like racial justice and equity. So the Biden plan to address racial inequity within the financial markets is quite ambitious. And I think a huge part of whether or not he'll be able to get through that will be just as Kurt mentioned, uh, what the Georgia runoff election 
looks like whether or not we have a Republican-controlled Congress or a Democratic-controlled Congress. I think that regardless of what the Congress looks like, I would hope that the Biden administration would be would still stay the course, that they would think creatively about ways to achieve some of the goals that they have set for themselves, especially in terms of access to the banking system and access to the capital markets for entrepreneurs and for women. And they don't just water it down based on what can get through Congress only, but they think broad and bold ideas as to what can truly have an impact. And to some extent, that will require a lot of study and data gathering and to just do that legwork as well. You know, as academics, we're always asking for more data. We want to see more information as to what that looks like. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Another prescription or another bit of advice I would also have is to whatever is implemented to try and make it something that can have some longevity regardless of the change in administration in another four years, or maybe a change in what the House looks like in another two years. So a huge part of um, some of what the Trump administration was able to do was they were able to roll back a bunch of the Obama era rules just using executive orders because that's how Obama also implemented a lot of rules in his administration. And Here, I would just urge the administration to actually get down and sit down at the table and to think about ways in which to make these rules that they are using or regulations that they're using to achieve certain forms of racial justice, racial equity, to address the racial and gender wealth gap, to think about these rules in a way that is long lasting and isn't just going to change from administration to administration. And I would echo the same thoughts for issues related to climate change and the environment as we think about how to systematize disclosures regarding the environment and, you know, whether you believe the feds should be involved in it or not, and whether you believe the SEC should be involved in it or not. The fact is that ESG is here to stay as an investment platform and more information and more disclosures are needed. And so just thinking through what those disclosures might look like in a holistic fashion and doing so in a way that can last beyond just this term, I think would be quite useful for the administration. And so I I would love to just see boldness because the Trump administration was quite bold. And so I would love to see a certain level of boldness from the Biden administration as well as they pursue their agenda items going forward. Thank you. Christina? Thank you. Well, open invitation for the incoming administration to pick my brain. Nothing would make me happier to have some chance to offer my two cents on some advice for for what to think about going forward. So two things I think I would mention here. So and I want to start with the Fed, and just a general prescription to be mindful of some very basic rule of law issues that we're going to be confronting in the coming years. Sort of the mindfulness that there would be serious long-term costs to encouraging or allowing or facilitating the Fed in particular to 
subvert Congress, to actively interpret its mandate, to include a wider and wider range of social and economic issues, regardless of their substantive importance to our society, to task the Fed, our monetary authority, with these jobs is one thing. But to enable or allow or look the other way when the Fed actively interprets its mandate to include these things is another. There are constitutional limits to just how broadly and with how much discretion the Fed can interpret its mandate beyond what it says. To push too far beyond the mandates of the Fed, regardless of political or popular desire, could truly jeopardize the legitimacy of the Fed's actions. And legitimacy deficits can quickly turn into authority problems for any governmental institution, and most especially for one that has the capacity to impact economic life so significantly like a central bank. And, you know, I'd encourage the administration and Congress to reflect on history and periods in history where monetary or central bank activism proved disastrous. As a very simple example, consider the United States' first efforts at something like a central bank in the first and second banks of the United States. You know, ultimately, these experiments in monetary authority failed because the people distrusted what the bank was doing. At the time, it was seen as an overstep to consolidate so much monetary and economic power in the hands of the federal government. New times, but similar theme. You know, let's not go there. To add on to this in slightly similar vein, give a point of advice, if you will, about the private sector and urge that it would be a disaster to go along with sort of currents of the day and allow banks to be pressured into unbanking certain industries. So the OCC issued a proposed rule in November of this year, November 2020, that would preclude banks from categorically excluding certain industries from access to credit. Now, the rule seems to have been motivated by what the OCC saw as various pressures from various different groups inside or outside of of government on banks to deny credit to certain carbon-heavy industries. But the problems associated with debanking have come up before, and in particular in the context of banks' efforts to avoid money laundering, right? Where keen to err on the side of caution, banks would cut off financial services to entire economies or geographies. And as the OCC said in its rule, banks are obligated to lend fairly. They aren't obligated, of course, to lend to any one customer in particular, but when they offer financial services, banks have to offer them to everyone and to only deny credit on the basis of bona fide underwriting risk assessments. Cutting off credit to entire industries, right, without any kind of risk-based analysis, not only does that smack of politics and banking, right, and even the Congress that established the national banking system in 1863 and 1864 had a distaste for politics and banking, but it's also, I would urge Congress and the administration to realize, a tremendously slippery slope. Which industries would be next? And perhaps more nettlesome, who decides that question? Thank you. And Kurt? So in thinking about what advice uh, you know, I might offer the Biden-Harris administration, and like Christine, I would be happy to talk to anyone in the administration about it. Uh, I think at a very high level, so much of the messaging out of the campaign and the transition team has been about healing or about restoring faith 
I think they've tried to position the team as a group that wants to build a consensus in various realms. And I would encourage them to continue to try to do that when they are thinking about their regulatory agenda, when they are thinking about their nominees to head up various agencies. Because I think, you know, even setting aside the results of the Georgia runoff election, for some period of time, we are going to continue to exist in this sort of hyper partisan environment. And I think when we're thinking about who should head agencies, you know, even if they're going to pursue a somewhat progressive agenda, I think we need to find people who are consensus builders. The SEC, for example, I don't think that that person should necessarily be all about undoing the rules that we've seen over the last four years, but really moving forward. And maybe that means just enforcing the laws that are on the books. You know, in, in the case of Reg BI, for example, that could have some uh, unintended consequences or impact that the folks who were coming up with the rule didn't think about. But, you know, instead of rulemaking by enforcement, just enforce the rules that are on the books. Provide new guidance where it's needed or where we have squishy standards from principles-based rulemakings or develop new rules and policies where we need to. But the focus should be more on moving forward on a consensus basis than going back and trying to unwind things. Because I'm just not sure there's going to be a lot of appetite for that. Also, in terms of building out the various teams, I hope that the administration will continue to focus on diversity. I think there was a lot of promise in the folks who were named to the agency review teams. You know, when I look at the team for the Federal Reserve Banking and Securities Regulators, it was an incredibly diverse group of people. And I am very encouraged by that. I hope that we will continue to see that as the names of nominees for various positions roll out in the coming weeks and months. And finally, just in terms of thinking about what should the regulatory agenda be about or, or what do we need to make sure that we protect? I think it's, it's always keeping in mind who's getting left out or left behind and who is vulnerable. And this is true at the SEC, but it's true really across the spectrum. You know, at the SEC, I think that means making sure that we are creating or encouraging safe opportunities to invest. You know, again, whether that is through better understanding what is the role of a broker or better understanding the circumstances in which a retail investor should be allowed to participate in a private offering, I think we need to make sure that we are creating a framework in which we're appropriately balancing the need to protect people and the need to make sure that people don't get left out or left behind. So those would be my pieces of advice for the administration. Thank you all for those thoughts and for this conversation. I wondered if, as we close this panel on banking and financial regulation, if you have any final or closing thoughts for our listeners or for each other, and I might do a reverse order for this last question. So Kurt, would you like to start us off? Yeah, happy to. I mean, first and foremost, I think to the extent that any of us wagered any predictions, uh, you should check back with us in three or six months and see how we did. Because I do think it's going to be an interesting, you know, first few months of the Biden administration with all that's going on in the world. You know, I, I was really interested during the course of this panel discussion just to hear a couple of the common threads that I think came through. You know, one is, of course, ESG and climate change, which regardless of our prism or the agencies on which we've been focusing, it's clearly something that is going to be addressed during the next four years broadly by various agencies and in various ways. So I, th I think it's going to be really fascinating just to see how that 
plays out. You know, also this concept of private markets, I think, is one that we've all spoken to. And again, it's going to be an interesting area to watch in this Biden administration and to see how the new agency heads and the sort of reshaped agencies are going to attack that issue. Thank you, Christina. Thanks, Andrew. Like Kurt, I think, you know, I'll just take this last minute or so to try and bring together a couple of the key themes, I think, that I've tried to sort of sprinkle out through the conversation today involving sort of rule of law issues that have been cropping up in connection with financial regulation the power of the Fed and the potential for private governance and how they sort of intersect in some areas that I've been researching in connection with climate change. And I guess the final remarks I would make are more macro in nature of a macro political economy than a purely financial regulation one. And I suppose I would say to pull it all together that, you know, there is a lot of momentum in the private sector. And the administration can be very productive in focusing on comparative advantages and synergies between private and public power. And in doing so, can really thread the needle with some of the rule of law issues that I had brought up before, right? And in particular, you know, the government could do well in being mindful that fiscal and regulatory resources are finite, right? And so to make sensible and lasting change in a variety of spaces, including the climate space, it needs to be able to deploy these resources to their highest and best use. And should the government be able to harness the power of the private sector, then we have a great potential to see the ability of the financial system to tap into promising technology and finance it so that it can scale rapidly. You know, meanwhile, government has the comparative advantage in things like R&D. And when we start taking a holistic approach, thinking about how financial regulation fits together with fiscal policy and other important social issues like climate change, it might well be that Congress questions whether it makes sense to continue to have a $1,000 tax credit for electric cars, which don't have mass market appeal and aren't affordable to most Americans and have you know tremendous implications with the batteries alone and suggesting that maybe those fiscal resources could be better deployed to research opportunities and in turn thinking about how the regulatory framework can facilitate the financing of important infrastructure technologies that the government then develops. And so I guess the lasting catch-all point that I would make here is to think holistically about fiscal policy, about financial regulatory policy, to think about social and climate policy, and ask ourselves, do we have the potential to be sort of unifying, as Kurt mentioned, and be maximally efficient in deploying scarce government resources to address the pressing problems of the day? Thank you. And Gina Gill, final words. It's been really great being a part of this conversation. And most of my views have been very, very high level in terms of thinking about this. And one of the things that I've been meaning to mention and, and, and never actually got around to it was you know, the very first thing I'm sure the Biden administration will be focused on that will have an impact on everything we've talked about right now is getting the pandemic under control. And, you know, so it's just at a very, it's the, the thing that will be at the forefront of the administration's mind. It would be really interesting that even as we think about how to get this pandemic under control and the different ways in which it's affected the lives of just millions of Americans and everyone really around the world, what this really means for how we use the momentum that we've had so far that wants to address issues of systemic racism and racial injustice within the financial markets and how we can use the pandemic actually as almost kind of as a lever to get us to certain places, to get us thinking about certain things. So my final 
final thoughts would be here that we need to keep this momentum going and to use this moment to focus on the things that matter, even as we get this pandemic under control or as the Biden administration turns its focus to get this pandemic under control, it also uses this moment and the momentum within this moment to achieve other things related to racial justice, racial equity, diversity. And like Kurt, I'm cautiously optimistic about how diverse some of these teams have been so far. And I would love to see that carry through the rest of the administration as we go forward. This has been the first episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. This panel has focused on banking and financial regulation. It's featured Gina Gale Fletcher, Christina Skinner, and Kurt Wolf. Gina Gale, Christina, Kurt, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. 